you know, we want to say it's it's easy to follow God's lead, but we've got a lot of information that gets thrown at us, and so did they. And what do you what do you do? What do you do? is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me today, we've got our friends Eric. Hi. And Tracy. Good morning. And Karen. Hello. Good morning. Hey, I wanted to take a moment here to give a call out to a friend of mine who mentioned on my personal Facebook page uh, something about the podcast. He says, "Just uh, his name is Elton Townsend. Some of you know him says, just wanted you to know how much I enjoy your biblical blog. Keep up the good work. Caught me a little off guard with the swine remark on the last episode. I think uh, I was probably throwing some shade at Karen there. And and uh, Elton, better known as E.T., uh, um, <laughs> apparently uh, uh, thought that was a little funny. I don't know. I don't remember what I said, but I'm sure I was poking fun at Karen. And so, you know. <laughs> I can't imagine that was true. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm always I'm always so respectful. <laughs> I will let you know, Karen, that when we were at my mom's last night for uh, for a little birthday celebration for her, <laughs> and uh, she was reprimanding me for it. So you've got someone on your side. <laughs> Everyone should be on my side. <laughs> I am put upon and persecuted. <laughs> <laughs> and it will never end. I have a work environment for her. <laughs> but uh this friend elton everybody knows him as et he's a, he's a really good friend of our family and um uh eric actually knows him too eric took a photo of him for the hospital here because et does these he calls them strength trees he's a he's got some skill with a welder i mean i don't even know how to turn a welder on hardly but um et makes these uh strength trees where he takes the welding rod and slowly builds up something that resembles a tree and he'll mount them on a, on a rock and he likes to give them to people just uh just 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 to be nice and and he did some of those for the hospital and stuff and then he got featured in uh, a magazine for them with a cover art cover art what do you call it eric photo just cover photo yeah yeah and uh, so it was kind of a little, little bit of fame for him for what he does for other people, and he's a good guy. So little shout out to him this morning on that, and a little uh, a little um, reprimand for me for my treatment of Karen. So um, <laughs> sorry, Karen. Not I sorry. doubt that's true, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into our discussion this morning. We are reading and discussing Jeremiah chapter 32 through 37. Now, as you will as you will recall, we have been seeing the gradual though seemingly kind of rapid downfall of Israel and Judah as they split as they uh continued to just spiral away from what God had uh, in in mind for them ever since taking them out of Egypt. Gosh, I guess really, I mean, ever since talking to Abraham about it. So Jeremiah has been giving them uh, prophecies, warning them that Babylon is going to come in and is going to essentially wipe them out. And nobody's been listening for quite a while. And so Jeremiah 32 starts in, we're told, the 10th year of Zedekiah. And now 
I've been noticing that the that the book of Jeremiah has been bouncing back and forth a lot because we'll talk about Zedekiah, then we'll go back and talk about uh, Jehoiakim, who was two kings before Zedekiah. So so the chronology gets a little a little back and forth and back and forth as I'm assuming it's Jeremiah who wrote the book and maybe he's just this happened and then oh yeah that happened and then this happened and oh yeah that happened so. Uh, something along those lines. But so right now we're talking about the 10th year of Zedekiah, which is, they said, the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. And uh, we're given a little foreshadowing that Jeremiah is going to be put in prison by Zedekiah for this message that he's been giving. And nobody wants to listen to. But here he's specifically given a message that his cousin is going to come to sell a field to him. Now, this is interesting because... This is God telling him, go buy the field. And so Jeremiah goes and buys this field, goes through all the steps of it, all the all the official uh, aspects of it, even though he's been telling everybody Babylon is going to come in. It's going to take the land. We're all going to get carried away if we're not killed. But yet he steps out in faith as God says, buy this field. And he talks about how he's he he recognizes God's power so he knows he knows that things are coming he questions the siege of babylon because it doesn't really make sense to go out and buy property that is just going to get taken away so what do you think about jeremiah's faith in stepping out with this following god's instructions without really understanding why god wants it you know i think that's what makes him a prophet you know he's He's been in, in charge of relaying these kind of messages, and, and it's been direct. It's been to the point. And I think this is just, when I read it, it was just another way of God signaling his people to say, you know what? This is just temporary. You know, continue to to make plans about your future and coming back and being restored and not to give up hope that, oh, we're going to be there just like we were in Egypt for hundreds of years and not ever have a place of our own again. I think it was basically like a keep the faith kind of move. Yeah, it, it in at the end of chapter 32, it pretty much summarizes it by getting exactly what Tracy was just saying there. This is what the Lord says. As I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will give them all the prosperity I have promised them. Once more, fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is a desolate waste without people or animals, for it has been given into the hands of the Babylonians. Fields will be bought for silver. Deeds will be signed, sealed, and witnesses witnessed in the territory of Benjamin. Right? I will restore their fortunes. That's the entire point. Is it symbolic of there's a future? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. He sees that God has power, and and then God is definitely reassuring him that there will be a return here. Now, I mean, I think it's safe to say Jeremiah is not going to see the return. In fact, probably nobody that's alive at this point, unless they're very, very young, nobody that's alive at this point is probably going to see the return of Israel to this land. But we just know the way that that Hebrew law was working at the time that property would go back uh, to the families. Yeah, remember, they're, they're already... 18 years into the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. So the clock, I believe, is already running. Mm-hmm. So it, it did the 70 years that were prophesied didn't oh. necessarily start at some point in the future. It had already started. Hadn't thought of that. Because they were to serve Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, and Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. 
And we know that uh, Daniel was present, you know, for some portions of those things uh, as a youth and then as an older man. So these things are kind of overlapping time-wise. And I think it's interesting that, I mean, I found it interesting that Jeremiah 32 is like the real estate chapter. Um, (laughs) Because he's going out and there's quite a bit of detail about how they did real estate transactions uh, back here in this day. And he's doing it. It is. It is. He's kind of the kinsman redeemer here. It's kind of like the story of Ruth and Boaz. That um, Boaz is supposed to, you know, buy the field. Remember that. And along yeah. with the field comes Ruth. And this is a similar situation. His cousin needs to sell the land. It seems hopeless. Why would you sell land that was going to be just held by the Babylonians because it's outside the city? And he, by faith. As a symbol, because Jeremiah's been doing a lot of symbols. Remember, he bought the loincloth and he buried it, and then that went bad, and he has a yoke that he shows up with, and then as a sign. And uh, this is another symbol that people can see that he's doing this. Um, and he buys it in faith, saying, just like what you've said, that like in verse 27, Behold, I am the Lord, God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And so he's like, well, okay, well, eventually I'll have it. And this is the sign I'm supposed to do so that people will believe that I'm serious about this. Mm-hmm. And that's why he does it. Now, interestingly, you mentioned that the timeline gets messed up, and it does. From 32 to 37, there are some pretty big uh, jumps, not just not just uh, clock time, but also in some other ways. So 33 gets into some very other uh time jumping kind of things. But in 37, we see what happens because the Chaldeans essentially, spoiler alert, they pull back to go chase the Egyptians because the king has hired the Egyptians to come save him. And the Chaldeans are like, yeah, okay, well, we're going to go deal with the Egyptians. And the Israelites are like, yay, we're saved. Everything's going to be just fine. And Jeremiah's like, no, it's not. But he takes that opportunity and goes to um, consummate the deal in chapter 37. It's it's a bit of a complicated thing, but in a way it's not, because mm-hmm. Jeremiah has been prophesying um, these things. And when we get to 37, we'll talk about that, how that kind of bounces back, and some of the characters we've seen before show up again. But yeah, that's what's going on in 32, is mm-hmm. an act of faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, God does assure that the people will return. There's there's no question, though, that that the Chaldeans will take the city. They're going to set fire to it. It's going to get burned down. You know, these things that Jeremiah has been warning for so long. It's it's always sword, famine and pestilence, which is not the kind of stuff that you really (laughs) want to have come in your way. It never sounds good, you know, but this stuff is coming. And and we've been hearing this for a while. But God will bring him back. He says they and he. It's another phrase that God uses. He says, uh, they shall be my people and I will be their God. It's not the first time we've heard that phrase, which, um, you know, I think that I think that's a phrase that is starting to set into my mind as something that I definitely want to remember all the time, because that is a big message that God has been giving all through the history of what we've been reading is that. He wants these people to be his and he wants to be theirs. That's the real uh, motivation behind all of it is 
relationship. Uh, there was something he said here. He says, I will plant them in this land. So talking about the return, I'll, I'll plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. Um, right before that, a couple of verses before that, it had a, in verse 39, it says, I will give them singleness of heart and action. And mm. I think that's a lot of what we've been talking about here is this sort of lack of fidelity. Like in my head, I know that this is important. And in my behavior, I show that it isn't because I go and I do all of these other things that are more immediately present and distracting for me. And that reminded me of James, the book of James, where it says, so it's it's that famous text in James where it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously without, right? Mm -hmm. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do, right? Well, that's a pretty scathing set down of human inconsistency. But, yeah, a double-minded man, you know, and, and about the time a human tries to be double-minded, it's like lip service to God and then behavior, however you feel like acting in the moment, because you can, because mm -hmm. hopefully you can skate by without getting the ramifications of improper priorities. That's what he's trying to cure them of. That's what he was trying to cure them of coming into the promised land the first time. And instead, they were still kind of in that, you know, that old slave mentality from Egypt where the big the big guys, the big people in the new land were scary. It's mm -hmm. like, they're huge. There's no way we can do this. And they still, they still only had their sights on what they themselves as little humans could accomplish. And they, and they forgot that it was God leading them and that it was the promised land from God and that God had brought them this far. And they forgot all of those things. And all they could see was the insurmountable things. And so they ended up split. Like not, they did not have singleness of heart and action. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I liked this text. It's like it's like a call out to fidelity, which is what they've been struggling with all these generations. Yes. You know, I was Go thinking ahead. the same thing when I read it is that I think he was trying to to give them hope again because they were they're going they're basically going into bondage all over again. And it's like, you know what? Don't lose heart, don't lose faith. You know, you're still my people. And because we read this a lot, just like we said before, we read this a lot during the Exodus where they couldn't see it. They had taken on so much characteristics of their their conquering foe, I guess, if you want to call it that, or nation that conquered them. But I think he's just trying to to just reiterate, you know what? You can still be my people. Continue to follow me. Continue to do what I say. Take this lesson and and move on. Well, I mean, he even gives them sometimes we'll see some here in a little bit, but he even gives them opportunity here to turn back. It almost seems now we'll get there. We'll get there. But it almost seems as if God would have been will, still willing to kind of relent and and pull back that that judgment. So we get into chapter 33 then. And there's it starts out with uh, such an odd irony to me. You've got the siege going on outside the walls. And inside the walls, they've been tearing down the houses to, like, build extra walls to 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 fortify against that siege. And I just saw such an irony on there. Let's tear down the city to protect the city. Um, 
it was just kind of odd in, in my mind, the way this is working out for them. Verse five says that God has hidden his face from the city. Not because it's wrecked, though, but because of its wickedness. Yeah, yeah. It says they come to fight with the Chaldeans, but only to fill their places with the dead bodies of men who I slay in my anger and my fury. All for whose wickedness I have hidden my face from this city. Uh, that's been a part of the message that's been given a lot. Well, not so much a message, but the counter of the message. You know, everybody thinking, no, 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 no. We're going to be absolutely fine. We're going to be fine. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll thwart these Chaldeans. It's going to be good. And God has, you know, kept saying, no, it's going to be your, <laughs> it's going to be your deaths that happen. It's going to be your downfall that happens. If you keep trying to fight against them and fight against what I have said, it's going to be your bodies lying in the streets. And that's what's happening. That's what's going to happen. And, but uh, I think that's the key, just exactly what you said. It's that you're fighting against what I'm telling you is going to happen. Mm-hmm. You're trying to, to, in essence, save yourself by, by making you know, alliances with the Egyptians or tearing down your structures to add to the structures. Like, it's going to prevent this. But in essence, you're just not even listening to what I'm telling you. Yeah. And, you know, we're told here that God will bring healing to the area again, eventually. Says then it'll reveal the abundance of peace and truth. And I underlined abundance uh, here because, you know, an abundance of peace being promised at a time when you're under siege, that might sound like a hard, a hard message to hear that, that. God does have a, an abundance of peace for you. Eventually, eventually. Yeah, the but captives... you can't have it right now. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, you can't have it right now. Eventually, they're going to return. Eventually, God is going to cleanse. And he says, and it says that he'll pardon the iniquities. Eventually, you know. And then it says it'll be a name of joy to God. Right now, it's not. Right now, it's a mess. Right now, it needs to be torn down and started over. Um, sometimes when you're not listening, you got to get the toys taken away and you need to have some corrective action. You know, sometimes you got to get get the swat on the backside and and get shocked back into reality. Uh, and that's that's what's going on here. That what God wants, you know, I mean, what's happening isn't necessarily what God wants, at least not in the sense that he wants to see his people dying, that he wants to see his people taken away from from what he's tried to give them. But I suppose in some ways it is what he wants in that he wants to see them corrected. He wants to see them getting a renewed perspective on what's important and what they're supposed to be doing. Well, and I think that oftentimes humans... um can't we struggle to gain that perspective of what's important unless we're facing something that forces us to pay attention to God? You know, it seems like once things are going well, we're so easily distracted mm-hmm. and you know, take our eyes off of what we're the what we're supposed to be doing and instead just follow follow every whim. That's that uh, that is a propensity that seems to come with comfort. And when we're uncomfortable, even though we do, even though no, none of us would sign up for that and say, yeah, no, let's let's go have some miserable years. Let's right. definitely get like get picked on and 
taken captive and everything we've been working for destroyed. Let's do that. You know, nobody would sign up for that at the same time. That is typically when people focus on God. Right. It talks about how at some point the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard. Do you think this was allegory for kind of a renewed relationship for God and the church? Because it seemed like more than just this is going to be happy times. To me, it really felt like this is talking about a renewed relationship where where the church and God are on good terms. What do you think on that? This is uh, verses uh, 10 and 11, I think, where it says, Again, there shall be heard in this place of which you say it is desolate, without man, without beast. Uh, goes on and on and on. Verse 11, the, vo- the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. I thought that sounded like a little uh, renewed relationship. And they're going to say, Praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his mercy endures forever. This is interesting to me, too. This being said, after they've been carried away, after they all the stuff is going to happen, these are, this is what they're going to say. They will eventually praise God. Yeah, this is where it gets a little tricky for me personally as I'm reading this, because as it gets into uh, 14, it is, in my opinion, definitely a messianic prophecy. I will cause, uh, this is 15, in those days and at that time. I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. Quote, the Lord is our righteousness, end quote. Mm-hmm. That's a spiritual thing, not a political thing. And maybe it was obvious to the readers at the time that that was going on. But once Judah goes into captivity here, they never get a king again. Right. It does not happen. And if you were to read 17 and 18 and then 19 and 22, it sure sounds like the nation of Israel will be rebuilt and everything's going to be fine again. But that is not what actually happens in history. And I wonder, was this a conditional promise? They didn't keep the conditions of the promise, and therefore it never happened again. Was this always intended to be only a spiritual, metaphorical promise of the future? But in you know, in 17, it's when it says, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to burn burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and make sacrifices forever. Well, either... I mean, a few of the options. One, that was a conditional promise, and it didn't happen. Another is that um, it was a literal promise, and God's little prom- literal promise never happened. I don't believe that that's the case because of God over and over says, when I say it, it's going to happen. Or this is a metaphorical promise, and this speaks to 17 and 18, essentially Jesus as the high priest in Hebrews saying that they will, you know, we will always have someone as a high priest for us. Um, Because here in 33, it appears to be largely spiritually metaphorical, not politically. Yeah, well, because 
let's see here in verses 19 and through 21 we're talking it's talking about how god's covenant can't be broken you know that's the words that use if i remember right how god's covenant can't be broken well it's god's covenant that can't be broken because the people break it all the time but god keeps a promise so i'm with you where i think we're talking messianic where it's like eventually Christ is going to be the king. Christ is going to be the priest. Yeah, that's that's actually what I was just going to say. It's like to me this is to me this isn't house of Israel promise. This is the body of Christ promise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like if you think of Jesus as a, as a son of David, then we do have someone from the line of David on the throne forever. Mm-hmm. And with him as our priest, we have someone, we have a high priest forever, right? Mm-hmm. All of those things, although it's not a Levite, so that's a little bit, my covenant with the Levites and the priests who are ministering before me, you know, it's it's not a Levite, right? right? David wasn't a Levite, was he? No. Yeah. So it's got to be messianic because that's the only way it's fulfilled, and then I guess the other the only other way I can think of is like what's what's the definition of the word forever? Does that mean <laughs> un- until the prophecies are fulfilled and they're completed, which was done at the coming of Christ? Mm-hmm. And there was somebody from those lines on the throne until that happened. You know, I don't know. That just that's the only other thing that comes to mind that it could be. Yeah. Yeah, and. It also talks about how God is going to multiply the descendants of David, how it said, like the sands of the sea. You know, I'm thinking that's probably not specifically literal either, because, well, I mean, we know that eventually the church comes in, uh, is is create. I guess we'll say created. I don't know how, how to put that exactly, but the Gentiles come in and start claiming some of these promises and get grafted in and... Now you have Christianity as one of the biggest religions in the world. And it's like, and we're supposed to be a kingdom of priests. So mm-hmm. by extension, is that the Levites? Maybe. Maybe. I think it's more specifically talking Christ, but yeah, maybe. Yeah. It says the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars of the sky and as measureless as the sand of the mm-hmm. seashore. So, man, it sounds logical to me, you know, looking back on it with hindsight and knowing those promises, those, uh, you know, those statements of what we are believing now being us being priests, if you will. So, yeah, I think, I think maybe so. But, uh, yeah, it's, it is interesting though, to have some promises here that they don't have a, a, a direct immediate answer to. As we step into chapter 34, now we get a warning from God to Zedekiah. It's the same warning we've been hearing. Jerusalem is going to be taken and burned. You will be taken to face Nebuchadnezzar. He has promised you won't die by the sword. Uh, he says you'll die in peace and will be mourned with honor. At least that's my 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 paraphrase there. And at this time, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Lachish, Azekah, these are the only cities that are left of Judah. So it's interesting that Zedekiah, being that last king, 
when it everything is finally taken, it sounds like he'll have a fairly decent time of it. You know, and we find that because there's times things we're going to read here about and talk about here with Zedekiah where it sounds almost like he's starting to listen, even though he's not considered to be a, a good king. It seems like maybe he was almost starting to listen. And this is maybe why. Why he, he his, isn't going to have that terrible death. He has his opportunities mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. every other king. And. He just sometimes just does not make the right choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it almost seems like he's a guy who eventually wanted to do well. Now, is it because because he's believing? Maybe it's because he's believing God, but is it just because he's trying to ward off consequences, or is it because he's actually believing and having a change of heart? I don't know. God seems to at least to a degree honor Zedekiah's choice making. If that makes sense. Well, Zedekiah um, does waver a bit, but mostly he makes bad choices and wrong choices. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. it's God's grace that keeps him alive, not his uh, behavior. He certainly didn't earn it because as we find later, he continually made bad choices. He basically he lied to Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, I'll do your I'll do the things you said. And then he doesn't do the things that he said he was going to do and which is pretty much the story of chapter 34 one of the Mm. core things here is that the people are told to release their hebrew slaves uh as i recall the israelites were never supposed to have israel uh hebrew slaves and if they were it's kind of like god works in increments It's like you're not supposed to but when you do here's what you're going to have to do that they were supposed to release them every uh, i believe it was seven years Mm mm-hmm but basically what happens is uh, Jeremiah says you need to release your slaves. And the king says, okay, 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 we'll, we'll make a covenant and we'll release all the slaves. And then as soon as they do that, they go like, oh, just kidding. You're all slaves again. And God does what he had to do before. He said, you guys just will not obey, will you? It, yeah, it is an interesting thing here because it doesn't seem... To me, from when I was reading there, it didn't seem to me like they ever released those slaves every seven years like they were supposed to. You know, even even when it was sort of allowed and it's a strange it's a strange it, it, how, how, how am I trying to put it? It's a strange situation anyway f- to have slavery amongst your fellow countrymen as it is. And maybe that is coming from a perspective that we have gotten about slavery based on our country's history with it which is i think probably very different from what was then i think that there was a way for israelites who were in debt that they couldn't pay to sort of indenture themselves for a period of time does that make sense yeah to so they could and it wasn't forever because of the Jubilee system. And they knew that if you were going to, and, I, and I'm calling it indenturing instead of slavery, because I, I want to differentiate the two. Like here in America, is like with, with a lot of the world, like slavery, like you, you buy a human against their will who has no other choice, who's sold to you by another human, and then you own them. Right. And, and that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is indenturing yourself to pay off a debt that you 
cannot pay or to support your family when you cannot support your family otherwise, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And with the Jubilee system in place, I, I know when it came time for the the people who got on the boats that came over to the American colonies to look, you know, go to the new land and look to settle and things like that, there were indentured servants. And the term of indenturing was seven years. And that comes from this, that comes from that period of Jubilee. Like that's where that's where the idea originates is like you you're going to be a quote unquote slave, a voluntary slave for this amount of time. And then at that point, then your term of servanthood is over and you are you go back to being a free person and you do you can do that to yourself for a purpose. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, I think, that's kind of I, the, I understood that. I think the yeah. key is with a purpose and I think with everything else, it, it's corruptible. And I think what happens is, is that once it it got out of the realm of of. Um, doing it for your like Karen was saying like for your family where okay I have a debt I can't sustain that debt I have to basically like she said indenture myself to somebody else for a period of time where in that system you know you could sell your land but it was still your land you know what I mean mm -hmm. where you know it was only given for a certain amount of time you well like a lease yes you'd regain it after a certain amount of time um it was not forever where I think it was corrupted to a certain point where, you know, was it financial gain or, you know, a, a status symbol of wealth where now you just kept them. They were literally your slaves. There was no end to that period where um, it just went on and on where too, when we read in the past where you had to treat them with a certain amount of respect and you couldn't hit them or you couldn't, you know, cause them to lose even a tooth but I think it just got corrupted somewhere along the way. Mm -hmm. it, it's a, it's an interesting, I don't know, we could probably go down a really deep rabbit hole here, but I just, I think it is interesting to talk about here a little bit about this concept of slavery that God allowed it because there's some, I've heard some people criticize God for allowing it at all. But I think, I think part of like what we've been talking about here is that it's not so much the slavery itself that is an ultimate evil, but it's how you treat a person who is in your servitude. You know, what we did here in the United States to to African or African, they weren't African-Americans yet, were they? To the Africans and even to the Irish, because we, we we enslaved Irish people, too. And the way we yeah. yeah and the way we treated those people was awful. And I say we I mean, my my. <laughs> my ancestors weren't here then. My ancestors came with my great grandparents, I believe. You know, so I mean, I claim none of that. But the point, the point being, we treated those people so poorly, and that is, and that's where God really has a problem. The idea of owning another person to us is is kind of reprehensible. It's like that just it feels gross to us, yeah. you know. But I'm going to say that's not an ultimate evil because God can still work within that. Mm -hmm. And so God didn't he, he didn't come right out and ban slavery because there's still a pathway there that things can happen. And it wasn't an ultimate 
It wasn't like a death sentence. It wasn't necessarily meaning you were going to be mistreated. In a lot of cases, it was just a way that people could be taken care of. Like even when when the Hebrews would would take people that they, from uh, uh, civilizations that they went and wiped out, well, that would have left those people with nothing. And so then they became servants to the Hebrews and and it gave them a way to at least be taken care of. Slavery in various forms, I, th- I think, has probably existed for most of humanity. But like the slavery was still going on in the New Testament as well. Although from the New Testament references, I'm not clear whether it was a voluntary servitude or a buy and sell slavery. I'm, I'm not clear on that. But like it, the New Testament specifically says, like, if you're what was the name of that slave that runs away? Like he runs away and then like he sets an example to his owner by returning to him of his own free will. I know who's talking guy's about. Name? Do you guys yeah. remember? Anyway, oh, there's there's it. examples that are set out. Like even if you're a slave, do this for the glory of God as if you're serving God. You know, mm-hmm. there, and there's these there's these references. So it's it's kind of like he, and and God says the same thing about divorce. He's like, I don't like divorce. I let you do it because your hearts are hard. So when yeah. you divorce, do it only for these reasons, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know. I just i i don't have a i don't have a whole lot of heartburn about it because I'm aware that it was part of part of life as they knew it, and I I also understand that it was supposed to be part of the system of jubilee, and. Mm-hmm. That people could use it as a way to sell, you know, to settle their debts if they didn't have another way to settle their debts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, See, that's that's where I was going. Is that early on it served a purpose just to allow, you know, that nobody was left. Let's just call it out in the cold, destitute, unable to feed themselves or their family. That they mm-hmm. could do this and to know that it wasn't it wasn't forever, and um, and that there was rules and and laws set up that they weren't to be mistreated mm-hmm. where, like I said, I think anything is corruptible. And I think sometimes it's taken out of context where when you look at the treatment of slaves in the United States, that was totally, you know, a 180 from what it was intended, you know, in, in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I, like I said, anything can be corruptible. And I think that's one of the things that we see that, okay, that's not the way it was intended to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because even if you look now in today's society, we still have slaves. You know, we have children that end up being, you know, taken away from their con- other countries, their families, and, and you know, brought to other countries, ours included, that they, they're, they are slaves. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there's no way around it. They're, they are mistreated. They are taken away from their families. And I think, you know, just... It wasn't the way it was intended to be. It, right, right, yeah. So, by God, not. I guess that's kind of what I'm trying to say is that by God, not outright, not not outright ab- abolishing slavery. It was because it was so different than our concept today. Even even those times when people were taken, I guess you could say involuntarily like when the Hebrews would take out a city and and then those the remaining people would become their servants it still it still wasn't it still wasn't intended to be what we perceive now as slavery 
No, because God would say, he would say, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Exactly. And mm-hmm. so now, now that you are no longer slaves and you, and you have slaves, remember how to treat them. And you know that firsthand because you've been on the receiving end of it. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think that's that, you know, that cliche statement, never forget where you came from. Yeah. You, know, you didn't like how you were being treated there. Don't, don't do that to somebody else. Was it always adhered to? No, no, no. Well, and it sounds like maybe it was like rarely adhered to. Right. But, you know, but we've seen, though, that there was there was rules around it. You're not supposed mm-hmm. to strike them. You're not supposed to kill them. You know, mm-hmm. and even, you know, it stands out in my memory that we were talking about even a tooth. It went down yep. to basically, you know, you hit them and they lose a tooth. You know, what was I can't even remember the penalty at this point, but. Oh, it was well, death, wasn't it? I mean, up to, yeah, I mean, up to, you know, whatever you, if you did something to us, to your slave, you had the same thing happen to you. Yeah. I was just, like I said, it's just, it's, it's corruptible. Yeah. Yeah. These are not people who are less than you. These are people who are in a position of misfortune, misfortune. They're down Mm -hmm. on their luck. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So treat them, you know, treat them how you'd want to be treated. It's, you know, goes right to that golden rule. And, uh, so anyway, anyway, the, the the takeaway from the passage here is that you didn't do what we what I told you to do. This is God talking. Basically, you didn't do what we told you to do or I told you to do. And so the the liberty that I'm going to proclaim to you now is that you're going to have you, you have freedom to experience the sword and pestilence and famine. It's a, uh, a an interesting way for God to say that that uh, that's what you're that's what you're going to be free to now, but it's because they don't listen, they just won't they just don't listen. So now chapter thirty five we get oh, kind of an interesting turn in in examples here, where we're told about these recabites. That's the way I'm going to say it, recabites. And God says to Jeremiah. Go to the Rechabites, take them to the temple, and give them wine to drink. And so he does. He goes and takes them. And but the these Rechabites they refuse to drink this wine because they've had an oath or a vow or however you want to put it. They were instructed way back um, by their ancestor Jonadab, who we briefly uh, heard about back in I forgot where it was. I think it was back in the kings or something like that but um they were instructed not to drink wine and not to take anything from from the vines like that among some other things that they weren't supposed to do and god says these recobites they do what they've been told by jonadab why won't you guys judah receive the instruction that i've given you you know they'll listen to their ancestor you won't even listen to me so what's up with that and says because uh, because Judah has, he's spoken to Judah and they haven't listened. He's going to bring on them all the doom that he's pronounced against them. But because the Rechabites have remained loyal to the commandment of Jonadab, they will always have a representative to stand before God. So what did you think of that interesting little um, back and forth in, in their their obedience? It's just another way God's trying to reach out to them. He's trying basically everything and I suppose people knew some of these Rechabites, or they knew their um, history. They had a reputation of this. 
And I think God was just trying to say, you know, these people will listen to human ancestors who ask them not to do something, but you won't even listen to me. Uh, verse 16 sum summarizes it, the whole chapter, basically. The sons of Jonadab, the sons of Rechab, have kept the command that their fathers gave them, but this people has not obeyed me. Mm -hmm. uh, just another word picture for them. Not even a word picture. It's a living example of, and I don't think that this is a, I do not think that this is a chapter about alcohol. This isn't pro or con, or this isn't talking about, uh, you know, being a teetotaler. That's not the, that's not the context of this at all. It's right. the context is obedience to what God has asked Israel mm -hmm. to do. And because they have failed to do it, he's trying to just show them an example. And it's mm -hmm. interesting. He brings them into the temple. He uh, does this in a, in a place where I think word will get around what's happened. And uh, the temple is, uh, is an interesting place where a lot of things are happening. And uh, anyways, that's why I think it happens there is, is, a, is a lesson for the people, just so that maybe they'll look at it and think and go like, hmm, that's a good point. But mm -hmm. you know, a good point being that once again, they missed the big picture. You know what I mean? You'll, you'll do what a man says, but you won't, you won't follow me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's been consistent. You know, it's been generations that you haven't touched alcohol, but yet I tell you what to do and you still won't do it. Mm -hmm. You waver back and forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, it is interesting that he takes this example of these people because we're not, we don't get any indication of why these people were to make this specific oath to take or to honor this specific command by uh, Jonadab. It, I think this is the only place it's mentioned that I could, that I found. So it is interesting that God takes this example where these people have shown faith, and I can only assume they must they must have also been showing some kind of faith to God, but but he takes this example to show, look, this is how easy it is to be faithful. It's not it's it's not that hard. Uh, we get into chapter thirty six now, and we well, we kind of we bounce back again because we've been talking about Zedekiah. Now we're bouncing back into the fourth year of Jehoiakim, who was two kings before uh, Zedekiah. And Jeremiah is commanded to write in a scroll all of the messages from God since Josiah. Now I'm thinking Jeremiah must have a pretty good memory if he remembers this. All You know, everything's for the last oh, one, two, three kings. But, of course, we're talking prophecies, and I'm sure God gave him some kind of divine reminders of what to write down. But he, but God wants him to do this, like in the hopes that Judah will hear what's coming and they'll repent. And he says so that he can forgive them. He wants to forgive them. Um, I got, I sort of got the impression here that this, this is sort of the t same tactic as um, Nineveh what he did for Nineveh when he sent um, Jonah. You know, if they'll listen, if they'll listen, I can I can pull this back. Did you get that? I mean, was that your take, that if they listened, that, that this might actually be pulled away? Or do you think that it was, you know, God has been saying over and over, this is going to happen, and so it's going to happen. What do you think on that? That's what he says in verse yeah. 3. 
mm-hmm. I'm yeah. telling you this so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive them their iniquity and their sin. Yeah. That's the whole purpose. And in verse 7, it may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that he will, every person will turn from his evil way. I mean, it's that's the purpose of this. Now, I find it fascinating that this message is delivered in the temple in verse 6 uh, and go on a day of fasting. Because, okay, the mechanics behind this is that Jeremiah has been banned from going to the temple. Okay? Mm-hmm. The church leaders say, no, we're not going to have it. We're done listening. And so Jeremiah is told to dictate these words to Baruch, his scribe, and Baruch can still go. So Baruch goes on a day of fasting, and that's in verse 6 and in verse 9. These good church people are going to church on a high holy day, and they're fasting, and at the same time doing their own thing. They're just running... They're, they're running parallel lives. They're doing the things. They have the uh, what would Jesus do uh, bracelets on, so to speak. And while they're going to church, they have, they're, they're disobeying God. They are just flat out disobeying God. Uh, I find that very both sad and ironic that the very people who are trying to minister to the church are the ones who are the most put upon by the church. Mm. Yeah, this scroll gets read in the temple as as Baruch is instructed to do it. He goes in and reads it. I think probably a kind of a brave move on his part. So I'll give him some credit there. But the it gets it gets read there. It it gets read in the palace. It's taken to uh, somebody here named Micaiah. 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 He hears what's written and he goes to the scribe's chamber in the king's house. And tells the people there, the men there who are some of them are princes and scribes. I mean, that's the way they're described as scribes and princes and tells them what they've heard or what he's heard. And they hear it and they're afraid of it. They actually get some fear and they want to tell the king about it. And in the meanwhile, they advise Baruch and Jeremiah to hide. So. Some people here are taking this message seriously. I don't know how you don't, because which one of these kings, there was one of the kings already who's been, obviously it's not, well, it could have been Jehoiakim because, hmm, seems like somewhere, no, this is, this is Jehoiakim we're talking about. At some point, some of these kings start getting carried away because like Jer- uh, uh, Eric saying before that this occupation has been happening for a while now. Uh, by the Babylonians. And so it's not like a sudden cutoff date when all of a sudden everybody is carried away. It's been happening for a while. You would think that obviously some people must have been starting to listen and hear because they're seeing what's going on. They're seeing that the Babylonians are out there. They're seeing that that um, people are being taken away and the Babylonians are rising in power. And these guys want the king to hear this. They want him to listen to it. And so they go to this king, they tell him what they've heard, and to his credit, the king has the scroll brought and read to him. But when he starts to hear a little bit of it, he it's like he snatches it out of the 
the reader's hands, cuts it with a knife, and tosses it in the fire. And wants Baruch and Jeremiah seized. But yeah, it says so, they, so literally what's happening here, remember, it's a scroll. Uh-huh. And the, the lines were written, written vertically, kind of like a book. But then they were written from right to left. So as soon as they would read a column or two, he'd cut it off and burn it. And then they'd read the next one, he'd cut it off and burn it. Mm. I mean, this is literally what's happening is he's burning it as soon as they finish reading it. It's a pretty bold move that he's doing. Um, uh, it's basically his way of saying, yeah, you can't you can't make me do anything. Yeah, well, and then having it described that way makes it sound to me even more uh, offensive what he's doing. When he's like being deliberately offensive about it. Where it was to me, it, it, the way I was reading it was, it sounded like it was like, no, I'm I'm not going to hear it. Snatch it, grab it, and toss it in the fire. But if he's doing that, like, okay, I heard it, get rid of it. Okay, I heard it, get rid of it. You know. Yep. Um, that's what he's doing. Yeah, I mean that that's really that's really in your face, bold uh, defiance. Yep. With that, yeah. And uh, but so yeah, I mean the, the scroll gets destroyed. And he wants he wants Jeremiah and Baruch arrested, but he can't find them. It says God hid them. You know, those princes told them to hide. Sounds like this makes it sound like there's a little extra supernatural help there where they where God um, made it so they couldn't be found. But then God tells Jeremiah to rewrite the scroll. And it sounded like maybe even a few extra things got added in the second time around. Not that we're given any details on that specifically. But he's tell, told to tell Jehoiakim that because he burned the scroll and he refused to believe that Babylon would destroy the land, that now he will have no heir to sit on the throne. And we know that to be true because he doesn't have a son uh, that that comes after him. Or at least what son he has is only there for a, a very, very brief time. I think Jehoiakim is only there for, I think I was reading just a few months. But he essentially is not going to have a, he's not going to, He's not going to have any heirs to take the throne and his body will be cast out into the sun. He is going to have no honors. He's going to be his body is just going to be completely disrespected. He's not going to be regarded favorably at all. And his family and servants, they're going to suffer everything that God has warned about. I guess that's the that is the consequence of that level of defiance. Especially when they've been given an opportunity to turn and instead utter defiance. So now we jump into chapter 37 and we're talking about Zedekiah again, more specifically Zedekiah. And we're told he reigns. Let's see, how did this go? Because he is reigning instead of, instead of the son of Jehoiakim. It sounds like, in fact, Zedekiah was actually placed on the throne by, by Nebuchadnezzar. Because at this point, Nebuchadnezzar, it sounds like he's the one who's really in charge and who's really in power. And instead of Jehoiakim's son, Kaniah, being uh, put on the throne, or actually he's kind of taken off of the throne, more more to the point, because he was there very, very briefly, but he's basically taken off of the throne. And Nebuchadnezzar puts Zedekiah there in his place. And I was reading, too, that name Zedekiah, that's the name that Nebuchadnezzar gave him, kind of like that he does with uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego d- later on down the road where they all get new names. He renames Mataniah to be Zedekiah. Uh, Zedekiah doesn't listen to Jeremiah's warnings anymore than anybody else. Uh, but 
Now, verse three was weird to me because he sends men to Jeremiah to ask him to pray for Judah. Now, what is that about? Doesn't doesn't want to doesn't want to listen to him, but wants him to pray for him. See, I think I think what happens is he, he's once again caught in the middle where he has to make some hard decisions. Is he going to follow follow God or is he going to listen to the people that are still thinking? You know what? There's a way out. You know, we might not have to succumb to the Babylonians and what are we going to do? You know, are we going to mount up like a rebellion against them or are we going to listen to God? And he wants, I think he wants to try to please two masters where he can't. Yeah, it almost, it almost seemed to me like he, he's not listening, but he believes what Jeremiah is saying. Oh, he does. And I think he has to do it in secret because he doesn't want to, I think he's worried about his own people killing him too. And, no. and I don't think he wants to lose face in front of these people either. So he does it in silence in this moving him in and out of the prison, you know, letting him be in the square, giving him bread. You know, I think it's just he's trying to play both sides. Mm-hmm. That's what it seems like. Absolutely. And that's what ends up leading to, you know, on our little chart here is he's the last king of of Judah. And it's definitely he's in the did evil category. Even though it sounds like God is working with him and he's listening a little bit and he definitely gets more honor than Jehoiakim. It sounds like he gets a little more honor. He gets a little better treatment because, I mean, he he gets carried away. He gets taken away by the Babylonians. It's such a weird, you know, talking out of both sides of his mouth thing here where I'm not going to listen to what you say, but I still want you to. I still want you to use your favor with God on our behalf. Oh, just, I don't know. It's just weird and bizarre and baffling. And you're just one of those times when you're looking at your leaders and going, what are you doing? What in the world is happening here? You know, how do you, how, how do you relate to a leader like that, that, that isn't consistent and, and, uh, is making odd, odd choices. I don't know. Yeah. So apparently they converted somebody's house into a prison and just Mm -hmm. put it in there and left in there. And, you know, by that description, it doesn't sound like a horrible place to be locked up. But Jeremiah calls Zedekiah out on it. And he's like, don't send me back there or I'll die. Mm-hmm. And so so he doesn't. He puts him in a better place where he's actually fed. And it's, it's it just, uh, you know, the curious historian in me is like, oh, well, what was going on there? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Zedekiah is. He's showing a strange way of trying to honor Jeremiah. At least that's the way I'm going to word it here. He's he's showing a little favor to Jeremiah. I don't know. It's just odd. It's just kind of odd the way he's the way he's doing this. Uh, well, Eric mentioned earlier that the Egyptians come to fight the Chaldeans. Now I didn't necessarily realize that they had been hired by uh, Judah to do that, but they show up, and the Chaldeans leave the siege to go fight the Egyptians. And God shows up here again. He says, basically he's saying, don't fool yourselves. They're not gone for good. Uh, even Egypt is going to leave. They're going to go home. The Chaldeans are going to come back. And he says, even if you, even if you were able to fight them off and all they had out there was, was wounded in their tents, they would rise up and they would burn this city. <laughs> That's, uh, uh, you know, this thing's going to happen. And, and, and 
Yeah, even if only one of them, if there's only one healthy one left, all those wounded guys will get up and they're going to take it out. So don't fool yourselves into thinking you're safe now just because your Egyptian buddies came to 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 help you here because they're not going to stick around. But the Chaldeans will. But when those Chaldeans leave the siege, Jeremiah goes off to the land of Benjamin to claim his property. And I kind of thought, I wondered if maybe this is the property he bought. Was that your impression, maybe? It's not super important, but... I think that's what's going on here. I'm not positive. But what I think is interesting is that he is going to do basically a real estate deal. And he gets to the uh, Benjamin Gate... And I don't even think he gets to leave the city. He was on the way out and he gets arrested. And Mm -hmm. he gets arrested on charges of sedition that he's going to go and he's a defector. He's going to say, you're going to go and give yourself up to the Chaldeans, which is what he's been telling them that they're supposed to do the whole time. But he says, no, actually, I'm not. I'm going to go out and do this real estate deal. And he's arrested by the grandson of Hananiah. You recognize that name? That's Hananiah, the false prophet, who's been speaking opposite of what Jeremiah has been saying the whole time. So you've got this little family feud thing here, and Jeremiah is arrested by Hananiah. And then the king Zedekiah sends for him and saying, well, okay, so you're going to get arrested, but what's um, what's 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 going to happen here? And Jeremiah's like, look, why did you put me in prison, first of all? <laughs> and then Jeremiah asks him a very interesting question in verse 19. Where are your prophets who prophesied to you, saying the king of Babylon will not come against you <laughs> and into this land? Yeah. It's a thing that Jeremiah is saying, test it. Test it. You know, we've got people saying you should do X, Y, and Z. Well, how'd that work out? Where are they mm-hmm. now? And we were already told that one person prophesied against Jeremiah, and Jeremiah said, well, you're going to die this year. He died two months later. But is anybody paying attention to that? Is anybody actually tracking that? Is anybody saying, well, who's telling the truth, and how did their word work out? We, we've run into this. My wife is in medicine, and people have told us, well, you ought to do this, this, and this. And it's not the, the medicine that my wife learned in medical school and sees in practice. And uh, my wife has gone through cancer. And during that time, people would come to us and say, other people with cancer, and say, no, 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 you need to do this. This is what's going to cure you. Well, I don't think so. That's not what's going to happen. Well, no, this is what's going to happen. This is going to be the greatest thing. And you need to listen to me. Fast forward seven years. If one is willing to look at what worked and what didn't work, some of those answers would be apparent. But we as humans have, my wife is still alive, by the way. Jeremiah is saying, look, see what works, see what's happened. You know, you had these other prophets telling you that, oh, within two years, we're going to get back the uh, the articles uh, for the temple. You know, by this time, that hadn't happened. And the prophet's saying, well, this is what's going to happen. And Jeremiah says, now God says you're going to die. And they died. Is Jeremiah is saying, just kind of track this stuff. You know, look, look and see what's happening, what actually worked and what didn't work, what's come true and what hasn't come true. It's a pretty straightforward thing that he's asking them to do, but it doesn't seem to 
resonate with many people. Zedekiah asks him, is there any word from God? And, and Jeremiah says, yeah, you're going to be delivered to the hand of the king of Babylon. Um, probably not what Zedekiah was hoping for, but basically, yes, everything I said is going to happen is going to happen. And uh, what have I done? Why am I in prison? Don't send me back there. And then, you know, like what Karen said, goes down and he he gets put in the court of the prison instead of in the dungeon itself, I guess, and, and at least gets fed until there's no more bread in the city to be had. Sort of a half <laughs> half hearted attempt on Zedekiah's part to give Jeremiah a little bit of relief, I guess. But uh, interesting, interesting stuff here. And uh, that's essentially the end of the reading. Whole lot of people not listening to God whole lot of people wanting to ignore it whole lot of people wanting to sweep it under the rug in the hopes that it doesn't go well uh or, or in the hopes that what he says is going to happen isn't going to happen um so yeah so basically the course of human history yeah <laughs> you know whole lot of uh turning off the news so that you don't have to hear the weatherman tell you that the weather's going to be crummy you know um gosh we're a dismal bunch aren't we Jeez. yeah yeah, well, we're, we're yes. <laughs> Short answer, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's a weird, it's a weird thing, and it's hard to be the person. It's hard to find the way to navigate through through it because, on the one hand, you got God saying everything is going to be bad, everything's going to be terrible. You're not going to like this, and so. Jeremiah comes in saying that stuff, but then on the other hand, God is also saying, but if you will just listen, if you will understand that um, there is another side on this, that there is a pathway through this, and you have an opportunity to be okay, but the people don't want to hear the opportunity to be okay isn't just ignoring the problem. So, you know, but it's that age old. I guess almost dichotomy that is it hard because if you follow God and have faith in what God said, that should be your only, only option, you know, but if you're going to follow man and, and succumb to the outside forces that are, you know, wanting to drive you the other way, then that's when the road becomes harder. But I don't think it ultimately, you don't want it to influence your choice, but we can see that over time it has. I think the thing that is standing out to me as we read through this is that in the human sphere, there's a whole lot of things that are in our face, demanding our attention, that seem like a solution. And then here will come God and he'll say, actually, I'm the solution. I have the solution over here. And you would do well to ignore the human elements that are right in front of you and to follow me instead. And I don't mean to oversimplify the world and say that all of our human problems can be solved with spirituality. I'm not trying to say that. But I am trying to say that the devil knows what he's doing and that he has had a lot of very clever ways for a whole lot of years to distract and try to destroy every generation as it comes along and has its moment. Mm -hmm. And within those generations, 
the individuals. I heard a sermon recently that talked about how you think the devil doesn't know your family history. He does. And he can work within that to try to destroy you. You think he doesn't know your nation's history. He does. And he can work within that to try to destroy you. So at the same time, spirituality is not necessarily the answer to all of our problems. The root of a lot of our problems, I think, is in that continual poking by the devil and seeking to devour and seeking to destroy. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a trick. It's a trick to try to try to disengage from that and not seek the solution on the same plane where the problem has been presented. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, I heard a similar sermon not too long ago where the pastor was pointing out that Satan has he. Oh, he's devious. Let's <laughs> talk about how most people, even in a church setting, most people are have an addiction to something. And if you stop and honestly think about it, you were probably introduced to that when you were very, very young. Like preteen young, like barely, barely grade school young. And he's set us all up. We've all been set up by the devil to find ourselves into these these conundrums we're in. And you're absolutely right. He knows your history. He knows your medical history. He knows your family history. He knows your national history. And he knows how to push all those buttons. And he set you up. And um, very similar to um, the uh, the woman caught in adultery, and and um, how she was set up to be found in that position, and where you know our experiences might all be different, our reactions might be different. He is definitely pushing those buttons to try to get us to make bad decisions. Mm-hmm. And to separate us from God, ultimately, that's his goal. And is and, and from separate. each other. And from each other. I would stretch that. Yes, separate us from God, but also separate us from each other. So that mm-hmm. where, where we could have the body of Christ, instead we have like finger pointing or feelings of separation or feelings of isolation or all of the things that can go wrong between human beings, which there's a lot. I mean, any of us that have ever had a human relationship know that there's a ton that can go wrong between people. So I look at these old stories about Israel and part of me wants to just shake my head and how could they be so dumb? And part of me is like, nope, that's the story of humanity. That's Mm -hmm. the story of every nation. That's the story of me. Like all of it, all of it is the story. Yeah. Like I, I have my own version of I was a slave in Egypt and then God came and he took me out with great signs and wonders. And then I was like, oh, hey, thanks for those signs and wonders. Where's God? And oh, man, I wish I could go back to what I knew before, because at least I knew then what to expect. Right. And there's this whole thing like that's a that's the story of humanity in the big scheme and in the small scheme. And. The older I get, and this does not, yes, I'm aging. Okay, fine, I'm aging. But the older I get, the madder I get at the devil for how nasty he is, and the more frustrated I get with human nature for being so easily distracted by his shenanigans. Mm -hmm. And it's like, 
he takes his supernatural intelligence and all of his experience with humanity and he aims that at, at us little humans who can't even see the spiritual war that's happening. Is it any wonder we fall for it? Yeah. But we just we just end up getting we end up creating for ourselves the things that we don't want. Yeah. The things that make us feel bad about ourselves, feel bad about each other, all of those things. And and so then here comes God. And he repeatedly says, why don't you just come back to me? Why don't you just come back to me? Mm-hmm. And we're, we're torn between, well, that's a great idea. But is it is it too simple? Is it, is it too <laughs> simple to say that God is the answer to everything? Because even if even though even though you could blurt out that answer, God is the answer to everything we need. Sure. OK, great. Now, 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 how do you solve this problem in front of you? It's complex. Mm-hmm. And multi-layered and multifaceted and has all these different contributing factors to it. How do you solve this? Yeah. You can't just you can't just blink and smile and say, no, 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 God is the answer. Yeah. You know, like like that guy. Before we started recording, I was talking about how I was talking about how I went to a birthday party and there was this guy at the birthday party who thought he he was of the opinion that severe mental illness, which is what I work with, it was was only a matter of faith to cure it, right? And to me, that was like a, that was like a, um, a smile and blink, and God is the answer. <laughs> to me, that was an oversimplification. It's like, well, that's that's awfully easy to say, you know. Tell that to the person with schizophrenia, uh-huh. or or who the the child who was born to a a teenager with meth in her system so that he never actually had a fair shot at life with whole biology, with whole brain chemistry the way it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. Like this fallen state that we're in is so susceptible to all of the nasty things the devil is willing to to aim at us. And then we end up, you know, that we end up playing the role of these kings in the Old Testament. It's like, well, read me the word of God. Okay, well, I didn't... Mm, Mm, I didn't really like that part. I'm going to cut that off and burn it. I mean, I want to hear it. I want to hear what God has to say to me. But then after I hear it, I'm going to cut it off and burn it. Yeah. It just, I don't know. This stuff is tricky. Being a human is tricky. Can we just go home? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, I always read these stories and I always wonder, the question is always in my brain, which side would I have fallen on? We always know which side we we hope we would have fallen on, but you know, the real, the reality, which side would I have fallen on? Would I have been standing there by Zedekiah going, yeah, yeah, burn that thing, you know, because you've, we've had, we've had other prophets saying things are going to be fine. And, and, you know, there's just been times all through the history that we've just, that we've been reading where we see reading it clearly God is leading in a direction, but when you're in the moment, boy, oh boy, you know, our, our, our human eyeballs, we have a hard time sometimes notice, you know, really seeing the path. And boy, you got to be, you got to be dead sure. You got to be dead sure of which pathway you need to be on. And, you know, we want to say it's, it's easy to follow God's lead, but we've got a lot of information that gets thrown at us. And so did they. Mm-hmm. And, what do you what do you do what do you do you know i guess we pray we ask for the we ask for guidance we ask for wisdom and And good heavens give each other grace we're all going through this mm -hmm. and you move forward 
it's an interesting set of circumstances we've been reading about and studying. And I see a lot of echoes in our in modern day and in, you know, personal life. Anyway, I guess that is probably going to be our time for today. Uh, next week, we will continue. We're going to do a little more in Jeremiah. We'll read chapters 38 through 40. And we're going to get back into the Kings and Chronicles. We'll read 2 Kings 24 and 25. And we'll read 2 Chronicles 36. There's some overlap there like there usually is. So Jeremiah 38 through 40. 2 Kings 24 and 25. And 2 Chronicles chapter 36. While you are reading that and waiting for us, remember you can reach out to us at attvpodcast at theadventure.org. You can comment on Facebook, too, because we're on Facebook. Uh, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast. Make sure you share the podcast with your friends and family. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening.